help us expand our audience by sharing this podcast with family and friends. Thanks. Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. The Anglo-Spanish War was an intermittent conflict that began in 1585 between the kingdoms of Spain and England. The conflict included much English privateering against Spanish treasure ships in the New World and several major sea battles including the Spanish Armada in 1588 which influenced the subsequent exploration, commercialization, settlement, and colonization of North America. Let's explore this tumultuous period with In Our Times, Melvin Bragg. On the 28th of May 1588, a fleet of 151 Spanish ships set out from Lisbon, bound for England. Its mission was to transport a huge invasion force across the Channel and assist in the overthrow of Elizabeth I. Two months later, this mighty Spanish armada was sighted off the coast of Cornwall. Elizabeth was to inspire the English sailors with a famous speech in which she declared, I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and a king of England too. Palling weather, poor planning, and spirited English resistance defeated the Spaniards. After a brief battle, their battered fleet fled. This tale of religious dispute, shifting political alliance, and naval brilliance has entered into our national folklore, although some historians argue that it changed nothing. With me to discuss the Spanish Armada are Diane Perkis, fellow and tutor at Keeble College, Oxford, Mia Rodriguez-Salgado, Professor in International History at the London School of Economics, and Nicholas Rogers, Senior Research Fellow at All Souls College at the University of Oxford. Elizabeth came to the throne in 1558. How powerful was England at that time? What was its international standing? Pretty rubbish, really, in comparison with the international standing of Spain. A good indication of this is that Philip was able to raise almost any amount of money he wanted in loans from Europe's bankers, and Elizabeth couldn't so much as raise a plug nickel because everyone supposed Spain, superpower, England, weedy little country, they're absolutely bound to win in whatever they undertake. And this, I think, kind of tells us that England was, it was on the margins of Europe. It was doing its best, its entrepreneurial best in the New World, but what it was principally doing was robbing the Spanish treasure fleets and treasure ships. It hadn't found any treasure of its own, unlike Spain, who had the wealth of the conquistadors to draw upon, though it was spending it pretty fast in the various wars in which it was engaged. So Spain, world superpower, England, tiny marginal country. And this is still the same in the 1580s. That England hasn't progressed in any way by then. We know it's progressed in all sorts of other ways, in its language, in its literature, in its laws, but it hasn't progressed in terms of power. No, in terms of power, England is still really a minority player, but it's got involved. It's stuck its nose into a bunch of acts in Europe, particularly the Dutch revolt, um, the revolt of the Dutch provinces, which the Elizabethan government, really with Elizabeth a very reluctant leader in this, was supporting, trying to support the Protestants in Holland against Spain. There was the particular events of the Leicester expedition to the Netherlands in an effort to support that Dutch revolt. That kind of tweaked Spain's tail. And as well, um, England was also perpetually, really, privateering around the Spanish treasure fleet. Privateering was a, a sort of lightly legally cloaked form of piracy. <laughs> yeah, privateering <laughs> is kind of a well-heeled, <laughs> posh piracy, really. Privateering is supposed to be licensed by the Crown. Yeah, that's yes. right, exactly. Spain was in South America, it was all over Europe, it was in Italy, it, it was, was in a the low country. It was yeah, a it's not wrong it was, to it say it was It was really very, very big. Yeah. yeah. 
So if you think of it in modern world terms, you know, Spain really equates with America, massive world dominance, cultural dominance too, linguistic dominance. England pretty much on a par with you know, maybe Poland or the Czech Republic, small but interesting. Religion is massively important then, yeah. and wars were fought in the name of religion, although wars were fought, in my view, always because people wanted to fight wars for power. But religion was used. Now, England in the 1580s was in a very tricky state. We have an Anglican monarch who has somehow, he's got the Catholics and he's got the Puritans, but let's talk about the Catholicism. I think Philip himself would have seen the Armada in terms of a war for human rights. He would have seen himself as fighting for the rights of Catholics, who were, fair to say, increasingly underwater position as the 1580s unfolded. And this was because the Elizabethan government started by being very lenient towards Catholics when Elizabeth took the throne. But that was because they thought that Catholics were just going to disappear, were going to kind of die out as time went on, and they didn't. As a result of various kind of intellectual endeavours on the part of English Catholics, what actually happened was some very high-profile conversions, particularly among Oxford intellectuals. The best known of these are Edmund Campion, okay. who was a Fellow of St John's, and Robert Parsons, also an Oxford Fellow. Because of their conversion, the government actually became afraid that English Catholics were going from strength to strength rather than disappearing. And thus the laws against Catholics got more and more and more draconian. Not only were they not allowed to practice their religion, but it became a crime even to harbour a priest. And Edmund Campion himself ended up arrested as soon as he landed, very nastily tortured and hanged, drawn and quartered at Tyburn. Let's talk a bit more about Philip II of Spain. One thing that might surprise was that at one time he was King of England. Absolutely. People tend to forget that. They think it's natural that England and Spain should be in conflict. But this was a very unusual situation that people found themselves in in the later part of the 16th century. In fact, England and Spain had been allies for centuries. That doesn't stop them from fighting on occasion. But they were natural allies because they shared a common enemy, and that was France. And that alliance was both political but it was also commercial. There were very close commercial ties between England and Spain on the one hand, and England and the possessions in the Netherlands, in modern-day Belgium and Holland, which were also ruled by Philip II. So strong commercial ties. And that closeness was manifest in a number of marriages. We tend to forget that Catherine of Aragon married two English princes for <laughs> the price of one, Arthur and then Henry VIII. And after that, it's their daughter, Mary Tudor, who marries the Prince of Spain, Prince Philip, who becomes King of England from 1554 until Mary's death in 1558. So this man had been a king. He had lived in England. He knew the English. And he had a real affection, at least for English Catholicism, if not always for the English nobility. He helped to reorganise the British Navy, is that true? He did rue the day, <laughs> but he was a very effective monarch wherever he went and whatever part of the world he either inherited or obtained. He organised defence and he came to England and found that Henry VIII's great navy had been allowed to essentially rot. And he thought this was very sad and uh, that the real strength of the English was their navy. And so he reorganised it. And some of the ships that he had either built or rebuilt in his period as uh, King of England fought against him at the time of the Armada. At the time of the Armada, Philip II was king over the whole of the Iberian Peninsula. But he also was the lord of the Netherlands, of the Low Countries. He possessed most of Italy, a lot of the western Mediterranean islands. He had possessions of North Africa and, of course, the ever-growing colonial empires in the Americas, but also in Asia. So he was a global power, a superpower. But with a great power comes great responsibility and very grave problems. 
So the idea of this uh, David and Goliath, this major power can raise any amount of money, and this tiny power, let's be sensible here, great powers, great problems, and they cannot raise enough money usually to defend themselves. So this is a power that is in very great problems in terms of finance. There have been two bankruptcies already. He is severely hampered by the distance between his states. So although great power, he has great problems. We mustn't get this idea that he was capable of just walking in and wiping the map or wiping little powers off the map. He had several fleets, but the perception was that there was one enormous fleet. He had several armies, but the perception was that these were the best armies in Europe, very well trained. You faced them at your peril, you were bound to be beaten because they were so strong. That was the very strong perception. Of the best armies, yes. In terms of the navy, he certainly had one of the greatest navies in the Mediterranean, but not necessarily the greatest. And as far as navies outside of the Mediterranean, now this was much more in doubt. In fact, the English had grave concerns that Spain might well attack them one day. But until that armada came to the Channel, neither they nor the Dutch really believed that Philip II could get a navy up to the Channel. Why did Philip decide to send an armada out when he did in the mid-1580s? There's still some room for disagreement about this, but my interpretation is that it arose from mutual miscalculation, that it's perfectly certain that Queen Elizabeth could never have deliberately intended to provoke a war with Spain, but my reading of the situation is that she, or perhaps even more her advisers, concluded in the early 1580s that Spain had in fact already taken a decision to crush England, that the jaws of a trap were slowly closing on her, and that her only choice was to fight now when she still had some freedom of manoeuvre and when she still had at least one ally, namely the Dutch rebels, or to wait until it was too late. And so she set out to try to mount operations, more or less semi-proxy distant operations, which were designed to send a signal to Philip II that she was not powerless. In particular, a quasi-royal expedition to the Caribbean yeah. under Drake, the West Indies expedition. And Philip II, for his part, I think had not in fact decided that it was unavoidable to engage in this appallingly difficult and costly operation mm. until this point when he came to the conclusion that he was never going to be able to solve all his other foreign policy problems, in particular never going to be able to crush the rebellion of the Low Countries unless he dealt with the English first. And therefore, at this point, I think, committed himself to a war which I believe he hadn't fully decided on before then. What part did two factors play? One is the religious factor, the perceived persecution of the Catholics. He was a very religious man. And the other was the execution of Mary Queen of Scots in 1587, the year before the Armada. What part did those two things play in his decision? You can't isolate religion from any matter of international politics right. in this period. Philip II is unquestionably a man of real devotion who would have loved to restore England to the Catholic fold. He would have regarded that as justifying being a king, doing a service to God like that. On the other hand, he'd done absolutely nothing for the previous 20 years, apart from diplomatic overtures to Queen Elizabeth. I gravely doubt if religion alone would ever have driven him to this extraordinarily expensive and risky operation if there had not also, or perhaps primarily, been reasons of state. And, of course, when he had made the decision, the whole business of justifying it to the outside world had to be essentially two-faced. To the Catholic world, he had to say, this was an enterprise to restore the faith, I need your support. But to the Protestant world, there were many Protestant princes whose alliance, or at least whose neutrality, he desperately needed. He had to present it as an operation of state, having nothing to do with religion at all. 
And in fact, this is essentially what he tried to do, to sing a different song to different audiences. To a limited extent, succeeded. Because he had his fleet blessed. That was fairly public declaration of where he was, didn't he? Yes, he had his fleet blessed, and he got a papal blessing. On the other hand, Sixtus V, who was nobody's fool, and who was not in the least keen on aggrandising the Spanish Empire, however much he wanted England returned to the Spanish throne, actually gave strictly limited support on very tight conditions. And this is important because it, in fact, distorted the whole strategy of the Armada, the conditions the Sixtus V imposed. Can you elaborate a little? Sixtus V was happy to see England return to the Catholic throne, but wanted to ensure that it was not returned to the Spanish Empire. His condition for providing, amongst other things, an extremely large sum of money, which he promised only on cast-iron evidence that the Spanish army was already ashore and not beforehand, Got ashore you. in England, yeah. was that the enterprise should be commanded by a non-Spanish prince of independent standing. And his choice was the Duke of Parma, who of course is an Italian prince, but is also, firstly, Philip II's nephew, and secondly, his commander-in-chief in the Low Countries. So, the papal conditions effectively mean that the landing force cannot be carried in ships from Spain, at least not the primary landing force, that it has to be transported across the channel from what is now Belgium. The Anglo-Spanish War was brought to an end with the Treaty of London in 1604, negotiated between King Philip III of Spain and the new King of England, James I. In the treaty, England and Spain agreed to cease their military interventions in Europe, and the English ended their high seas privateering in the New World. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride.